Well, this morning, would you please open in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's on page 1,142. 1,142 of the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our focus of attention will be verses 23 to 34. We have a a lot of text to cover here. But let me start reading in verse 20, just for the context. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. But our focus will be in verses 23 to 34. Hear now the word of the living God. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do ask now that you would, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, Illuminate your, this word to us, Lord, and reveal yourself to us, Father. Let us know with great conviction the truth that is found in this text. We admit, Lord, that preaching is in vain apart from you, Lord, and hearing is in vain apart from you. So we ask, Father, with great dependence upon your gracious activity that we will hear and heed your word and be fortified in our faith by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
two days ago, February 24th, marked the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion to Ukraine. And over a year, 300,000 have been left dead in its wake. Earlier this month, in February 6th, there is a 7.8 earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and the death toll has reached 50,000. At the end of 2022, it's been tallied in Chicago that there have been 630 homicides. Or we can even think of October 31st last year, Sam Usman passed away. The last time Shauna and I were here was on December 23rd, the funeral of David Van Weeren. During World War II, during a time when the reality of death was most visceral, C.S. Lewis, he spoke to the student body at Oxford University, and this is what he said. He said, the war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. So that no matter how safe or healthy we think we are, we have always been been living on the edge of this precipice called death. Peace treaties and police officers may keep us from killing ourselves. Medicine, diet, and exercise may slow it down, but it's as if the moment we were born, we've all entered hospice. And the countdown timer has been set. In other words, brothers and sisters in Christ, it seems that death is the unconquerable foe. With all the technologies and philosophies, all the diplomacy and medicine, no one can, pre- no one can prevent the onslaught of this enemy. There is no enemy more powerful, unstoppable, inevitable, universal, permanent than death. And the question is, who can fight against this great enemy? And the Corinthians, while they faced a similar issue, they saw that this delay in the bodily resurrection, the delay in the bodily resurrection seemed to prove that the power of death is permanent and final. That death has the ultimate victory. That death is a great victor of this age. It's like, Paul, you, you say that there is this bodily resurrection. That this, there's this bodily resurrection of believers, yet we still face the abiding power of death, the abiding and continuing power of death. Yes, Christ was raised from the dead. But, Paul, we still physically die. And we don't only experience death in a moment. We stay dead. It only took Christ three days to rise. 
But Paul, my, my mother or my son, my spouse, she's been dead for three years, Paul. Like, weren't you at the funeral? Didn't you see her lifeless corpse? She's not going anywhere. The present abiding power of death as shown by the fact that we die and we stay dead, as exemplified by our decaying corpses, seems to prove, it seems to prove that death is the unconquerable foe. That even though Christ himself had victory over death, there is no guarantee that we ourselves will have victory over death. And yet... I want us to have it settled in our hearts this morning that there is a son of David stronger than this Goliath named Jesus Christ. I want us to believe with all our hearts the deepest conviction of our souls. Just four words. Christ will destroy Death. Christ will destroy death. And we will look at that in three developments this morning. I don't know if it's on the bulletin. <clears throat> three points, if you want to follow along. Point one is the reality, verses 23 to 28. The second point is the results, verses 29 to 32. And then finally, the response in verses 33 to 34. So consider with me uh, the reality. The reality that Christ will destroy death. I want you to notice the timeline. The delay in the bodily resurrection forced the Corinthians to question the reality of the resurrection. So either it will never happen or somehow it already happened in a spiritual way. But the issue is the question is one of timeline. Look at verse 23. It says, what does it say there in verse 23? But each, that is each resurrection, each resurrection has its own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there is a specific sequence of events. You need to have, you need to have two crucial dates in your mind. Envision two crucial dates. The first one is the chain of events that began with Christ when he was raised from the dead. So Christ already inaugurated or began the first sequence of events. And he calls a chain of events in his resurrection. That's the first event. Christ has already been resurrected. So the idea is that even though there's this inseparable bond between Christ's resurrection and ours, they were meant to occur in two separate episodes. So then in verse 24, Paul says, then comes the end, meaning the end has not arrived until we have been resurrected. Only then, only then will Christ deliver the kingdom to God the Father. And this means this, while Christ's kingdom is present, Christ is reigning even right now, the kingdom in its comprehensiveness, its fullness, the full extent of the kingdom, the kingdom in full bloom, has not yet arrived. 
meaning there is still a sense of progress. There is still a future goal to be met in this kingdom. And then he'll deliver the kingdom to God. So then there's a certain timeline, okay? There's a certain timeline, Christ's resurrection as our first fruits, then our resurrection, but there is no indication that the resurrection will not happen. Our resurrection is delayed, but it's still connected to the first resurrection. So even though, here's the point, even though there is a delay, it does not mean, it does not mean that Christ is presently inactive. Notice, the fulfillment of, the, of his kingdom won't arrive until certain conditions are met. So look at verse 24. The fulfillment of his kingdom won't arrive until after he destroys every rule and every authority and power. Or verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the time period between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection is not a period of rest for Christ. Christ is on an active military campaign until every rule and authority and power is destroyed. So don't only see that there's this two-part refraction, Christ, then, then us. You have to also see that there's this progressive subjection of all his enemies in between those two periods. And the idea is that now that Christ has been resurrected and he's ascended, Christ is not reclining on the lazy boy just resting his eyes. Christ has wet his sword and he's marching forward making warfare against all enemies. All superhuman, invisible, spiritual enemies. What Gerhardus Voss calls the superterrestrial enemies unobservable to mankind. These cosmic powers that operate in and behind all the corruption and sin of this world. Christ is on an active military campaign. He's on a crusade of cosmic proportions until not a single voice can say no to his sovereign rule. Christ is on a military campaign. And you say, okay, what does that have to do with the resurrection? It seems like an idea that has no connection with the resurrection. What does that have to do with that, Paul? Well, notice how comprehensive Paul is in verse 24 and verse 25. It says, every rule, every authority and power, all enemies... So consider the logic here. If all enemies will be destroyed by Christ, and if death is an enemy, it follows that death will also be destroyed. So if all enemies will be destroyed, and if death is an enemy, it follows that death will also be destroyed. Meaning death is no exception to Christ's sovereign rule. Christ is not content with half measures. Death will not have the final word. 
Christ's active reign means the inevitable defeat of death for us all. In fact, if you look at verses 27 to 28, Paul says this isn't only Christ's work. He says the Father himself, the Father himself is the one who puts all things in subjection under Christ. Meaning this is a Trinitarian work. The Son will not subject himself to God the Father until all things, including death, is subjected under Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow Christ is inferior or becomes inferior to the Father. It simply means that Christ will not have fulfilled his mission, which God sent him, sent him out to do. And only then, at our resurrection, when he defeats death, it says there, will God be all in all. So only then will God's sovereign will hold sway in all quarters of the cosmos and all its ways. Only then. In other words, our future bodily resurrection, our future bodily resurrection is part of something far greater than us. Christ's destruction of death is part of God's ultimate purposes for all things. So then, yes, we live in a time where we have not yet reached the end of Christ's redemptive work. But still, the destruction of death is certain. The delay of our resurrection is not a permanent state of affairs. Our condition as corpses in the grave is not a permanent state of affairs. The reign of death is not permanent. Why? Because if Christ himself, if Christ himself is doing battle on behalf of the Father for us, then there will be no evacuation plan. There will be no counterflank. There will be no peace treaty with death. Nothing will, nothing will prevent Christ from kicking down the door of death and putting his boot on its neck. Death, our greatest enemy, is impotent against Christ. The, la- the first enemy unleashed through the fall will be the last enemy destroyed. Meaning this, there is a doomsday clock for death. Death is on Death has a deadline. Death is living on the edge of a precipice. Christ will destroy death. So then, if we don't accept this reality... If we don't accept it, what are the results? Or what are the implications? So Paul moves on in verses 29 to 32 to explain the results. So let's move on to the second point. <clears throat> if death is permanent and final, then the, way, then the way we live as Christians is entirely inconsistent. And Paul here gives three behavioral inconsistencies of the Christian life. So you can write this down if you want. You don't have to. 
But there are three inconsistencies, and the first one is the sacramental inconsistency. So look at verse 29. It says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So the obvious question is, what in the world is baptism on behalf of the dead? There have been proposed 40 solutions to this question of what it is. So I'll give you what I think is the best answer. <clears throat> I don't think this is a non-Christian practice. So this is not a non-Christian practice that Paul is employing for like rhetorical effect. First, I don't think baptism for Paul was not theologically benign. Baptism for Paul was not inconsequential. He says in chapter 1, we were all baptized into one body. Meaning baptism for Paul was a very, a very serious matter. And especially for a church who boasts in false knowledge, I don't think Paul would want to allow any room for them to misunderstand him. So for Paul, baptism is a very serious matter. Second, we have to remember that one of Paul's targets was something called sophistry, and that's just this idea of the uh, pragmatic use of rhetoric to win an argument, regardless if it's true or not. It's like a smooth-talking con man. This idea that you use rhetoric simply to win. But Paul was no politician. He says in chapter 2, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. So I don't think that this was a non-Christian practice that Paul was just talking about for rhetorical effect. Meaning this, that this was a Christian practice. This was a Christian practice. So then one solution is to say baptism for the dead was a legitimate, a vicarious, magical baptism on behalf of our dead relatives. Something that the Corinthians practiced and Paul condoned. Uh, the Mormons believe that. The problem is there is absolutely no historical evidence to back that claim up. There is zero extra-biblical material to support that claim. It doesn't even exist at all in the early church. So I think the best answer is baptism for the dead was Paul's way of referring to baptism as we understand it, how we understand it. Remember, Paul just talked about the promise, the promise of Christ's future destruction of death and the guarantee of the bodily resurrection. And that's exactly what baptism is supposed to signify. That we participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. When we are baptized, we are identifying ourselves with Christ's death and resurrection. Romans 6, right? And the term for dead here in this passage can have a more narrow idea of dead bodies or corpses. So Paul is saying, why would we baptize ourselves of what is merely a dead body? If our bodies stay dead, then our baptism, which says we won't stay dead, is a lie. Baptism would be misrepresenting God. Our baptism only makes sense because of the final defeat of death. 
So that's a sacramental inconsistency. The second would be the ministerial inconsistency. Verses 30 to 32, it reads, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So this is the ministerial inconsistency. The, the keystone of Paul's life was the resurrection of the dead. He says it shaped every hour and every day of his life. In this case, dying every day then, Paul says, I die every day, doesn't just mean he's detaching his ultimate interest from this world. It really meant that his, he put his life in constant jeopardy. That he lived a death defying life. He defied death every day. And then in verse 31, he says, by my pride in you. So Paul is saying, you Corinthians wouldn't even exist. You are living proof that this kind of death-defying, resurrection-hoping life is meaningful. You would not exist as a church if I didn't minister in light of the resurrection hope. So Paul says, I boast about you because it shows the power of the resurrection. So that's a ministerial inconsistency. But notice also in verse 32, he gives a concrete example. He asks, what does he gain, humanly speaking? So from the perspective of man's insufficient resources against death, what gain is there? What profit is there for fighting with beasts in Ephesus? Now, we know that Paul is writing from Ephesus. And in 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 15, sorry, chapter 16, verse 9, he speaks of many adversaries to the gospel in Ephesus. So the idea is not that Paul fought with literal beasts in some Ephesian Colosseum. It meant that Paul contended with powerful and even dangerous opponents to the gospel. And Paul is saying, why would I contend with those in Ephesus that could take my life? Why would I do that? I wouldn't be courageous. That's just being a a reckless daredevil, rolling the dice with my life. So that's the ministerial inconsistency. And then last, the third sub-point, if you will, is the ethical inconsistency. Verse 32b, it says, If the dead are not raised, if you look at that with me, verse 32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ will not defeat death, then Paul is admitting that the most logical approach to this life is to do what the Corinthians were already doing, which is living for the pleasures and hopes of this life only. He says, let us eat and drink. Let us maximize our gratification today. Let us maximize all we can do in this life, in this present age. Why? For tomorrow we die. 
Death is the padlock of this present age. And do you feel how tragic that's, this statement is over here? There's this feverish hoarding of pleasure in the present. Why? Because there, there's this anxiety that here stands death and no one can get past it. So we hoard as much as we can here. We seek the pleasure here, sitting in, a, in the buffet of a sinking Titanic. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hedonism, or living for the pleasures of this life only, is no mark of freedom. Hedonism is no mark of freedom. It's a mark of slavery under the tyranny of death. And this is exactly how our culture is today, isn't it? No culture really emphasizes sensual gratification more than ours, and yet no culture suffers more from suicide. We see this weird, strange mixture of self-indulgence and depression. The mixture of pleasure and hopelessness. We eat and drink and we gather all we can today, putting our hope in an easy life, a pleasurable life, or leaving a lasting legacy on, on earth, or setting up some sort of political utopia here. Why? For tomorrow we die. In other words, everything about how we live as Christians in this present age must be viewed in light of the resurrection hope. Everything about how we live as Christians in this present age is conditioned on whether or not we can break through the padlock of death. If death is victorious, why not fly to the hopeless sensuality of this age? If death is victorious, why count our lives cheap and take risks for the sake of the gospel? If death is victorious, baptism is a lie. Whether by sprinkling or immersion, a better picture would be to submerge the covenant member underwater into the habitat where human life is impossible and to hold him there and to let him drown in a watery grave. That would be a better picture if death is victorious. All Christian preaching, all Christian sacraments, all Christian ethics are normed and interpreted in light of the final defeat of death and the resurrection. Without it, then, Christianity has no substance. It's a farce. Like, what are we doing as Christians if there was no resurrection? This is all a farce. So those are the results. Let's move on to see, then, how we should respond. The response. Look at verses 33 to 34. Paul, he now speaks directly to the Corinthians. 
So if Christianity is not a farce, then what is? In verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So don't be deceived by those company of people who deny the resurrection. And then in verse 34, he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor. Come to your senses and don't go on sinning. In other words, he's saying, he's saying the resurrectionless world, the world where death has ultimate victory, the world where our existence in the grave is our final destination, Paul is saying that world is a farce. That world is a lie. That world is a delusion. It's a tilted and misshapen existence. It's a mockery of reality. It's a pixelated metaverse. It's a Disneyland, a fantasy world. It's a dream in which you must awaken from. And the reason, Paul says, they live in this deluded reality, this deluded resurrectionless reality, is because of verse 34. For some have no knowledge of God. They don't know, and they don't accept the reality that Christ will destroy death. And then Paul says, I say this to your shame, because the very thing the Corinthians boasted of was the very thing they lacked most which was the knowledge of God. Indeed. This knowledge of God is the most important thing we can give as Christians. One theologian, his name was Karl Barth. I don't agree with everything he said, but Karl Barth, he said that these words, for some have no knowledge of God, he said that these words should be emblazoned on the pulpit steps. Why? Because the only thing that will wake people from this hopeless, self-contained dream of a resurrectionless world is the knowledge of God. And the heartbreaking thing is we typically think that people prefer fantasy worlds because they can't cope with the pain of real life. So they prefer an easier, better reality, even though it's fake. So the dream world is supposed to be better than the reality, right? But in this case, the dream world is actually far worse than the reality. It's like the teenage boy in the West Side Chicago neighborhood who's been told all his life he has nothing to live up to, that there is no life beyond, beyond the, the West Side Chicago neighborhood gangs. There's, there's no life beyond that. And then he believes it. 
and he's deluded. And we wish someone could take him by the shoulders and tell him there's more, that that's a lie. Or there's this story of a child who was kidnapped and abused, and she is so victimized that she lost any sense of freedom. So much so to the point that her abuser could walk around in public with her and never fear that she would run away. And we wish someone would tell her there is something beyond those abusive walls. And so too, it is with us. We live so constrained, so close into this life, so anxious to live for this life only. When there is far more beyond the West Side Chicago neighborhood called the present age, that there is more hope beyond 15 years of retirement, that there is something else besides crow's feet and car accidents and cancer. Death is not the end. Death is not the victor. So why would you prefer to live as if it were? As if death is permanent. Anxiously scrambling for some kind of significance and meaning in this life only. Why would you prefer to live in the abusive household of death? Will not Christ destroy death? When death looks at us in the eye and says to us, there is nothing more unstoppable or powerful than me, I pray that we can respond that there is nothing more unstoppable and powerful than Christ. Christ will destroy you. Let's pray. Father, we want to be able to say, like Paul, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Help us, O oh Lord, not to fear death and its cold grip that it has in this present age. Help us to really believe, Lord, what we confess so often in the Apostles' Creed. We say, Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. But let us truly believe, Lord, that we believe in the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Give us, O oh Father, here great confidence that there is a resurrection of the body and that there is life everlasting with you. Help us then, Lord, not to face death quivering, 
but to really deal with this, Lord. To not try to shut it out or just ignore it or just fill our lives with entertainment, trying to numb the reality. Help us, Lord, be able to face this, face this with great confidence. Unlike the world, Lord, who has no hope, help us to face it with great hope that Christ is the victor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.